This is the sidebar for the week of November 3rd, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our yearly trade uh, up until President Nixon's visit uh, was less than $100 million a year. And only a handful of jobs in both countries depended on trade between the two countries. Since then, our trade now is uh, today $1.5 billion per day, um, and millions of jobs in America depend on trade with China. This week, U.S.-China relations from President Richard Nixon's historic visit in 1972 through today, and the perspective of Ambassador Gary Locke. He served as the U.S. envoy to China from 2011 through 2014. President Trump visits the country this week as part of a five-nation Asian tour. Ambassador Gary Locke, let me begin with a, a broad and general question. What is the best way, from your perspective, for Americans to best understand the Chinese people and its government? Wow. First of all, it's still a communist country, but it is also perhaps uh, the world's most modern country, while at the same time its most ancient civilization. Uh, It is a country of contradictions, of huge challenges, uh, both uh, internally and for the Chinese leaders. When you say a country of contradictions, what do you mean? Well, it's got some of the most gleaming, tallest skyscrapers in the world, uh, a very large urban middle class, and yet it has hundreds of millions of people who are still living on less than a dollar a day. Uh, so it's a, a city of huge contrast, and the cities, the gleaming cities that you see on the east coast of Beijing and Shanghai and Guangzhou uh, are very, very different from how uh, a good one-third of the people live in the countryside and barely getting by. As President Trump prepares to travel to China next week, he will, of course, be meeting with President Xi Jinping and the Chinese National Congress basically giving him authority over the Chinese government for the foreseeable future. What does that mean for President Xi, and what does that mean for President Trump as he prepares to meet with him? Well, President Xi has just been uh, reappointed or elected to another five-year term. That was not unexpected. So he will have full control of the country for the next five years and possibly beyond that. Uh, He has certainly amassed a lot of power uh, over the last several years, and he's in the middle of everything, and uh, over the military, over the economy, over the political operations, and over the Communist Party. Uh, so he is uh, really a force to be reckoned with and is, has increased in stature uh, around the world and has launched several initiatives that will uh, increase the influence and the power of China uh, throughout the world with their foreign aid program called the One Belt, One Road Initiative, in which they're going to be investing hundreds of billions of dollars to uh, developing countries uh, throughout the region, gaining it not just jobs uh, and uh, business opportunities for Chinese companies, but also spreading Chinese influence and goodwill. Uh, that's going to you know, perhaps uh, present a rival to the influence and the stature of America. Uh, President Trump will be meeting with President Xi. Uh, Of course, President Trump will be going to Japan, Korea, uh, China, and then off to Vietnam for the uh, 
APEC meeting and also some other uh, uh, Southeast Asian um, uh, conferences, and then going to the Philippines. This is an opportunity for President Trump to really uh, reassure the allies uh, that America is committed to uh, its presence, its role in the region, because it's really been the United States over the last 50, 60 years that has enabled the region to really prosper. Uh, economically and with quality of life and uh, bringing stability and peace to the region. Uh, China now, of course, is uh, posing a major challenge uh, to the world order, not just in terms of trade, but in terms of some military issues, disputes with islands. Uh, and, of course, uh, uh, China is a key player in trying to resolve the very difficult problem of North Korea. President Trump has an opportunity to really sit down with President Xi to talk about trade issues, trade frictions, but also how the United States and China must work together uh, to solve the North Korea problem, uh, to uh, uh, cooperate on a whole host of political, economic, and even uh, global security issues. You use the word reassure. Do our allies, Japan, South Korea, do they need reassurance from this administration? Well, President Obama spent uh, a lot of time uh, in terms of foreign policy attention and strategic attention to uh, uh, the Asia-Pacific region uh, as we were withdrawing or, or uh, drawing down our forces in the Middle East after all the preoccupation with Iraq and, and uh, Afghanistan. It's only natural that we try to resume our attention and uh, involvement in the Asia-Pacific region because it is the, the hub of the world economy and um, the future of economy uh, of the world. Um, and uh, But President Trump now uh, appears to be pulling back uh, in the eyes of world leaders. They're not sure about the commitment of the United States to the peace and security and the stability of the region. Uh, and, of course, they saw what happened with the uh, President Trump's withdrawal from the uh, climate change accord as well as from the TPP. Now, the TPP is controversial, uh, but many countries actually made huge concessions toward the United States. Uh, in the TPP, opening up their markets, lowering the tariffs and duties that American goods face, imposing tougher environmental and health and human safety standards on their own companies to help really provide a level playing field, uh, addressing the concerns and the complaints that American companies, American farmers, American labor unions uh, have long had about um, the unfair advantage that other countries have. Uh, so these countries were really... Uh, um, uh, coming to the table, making huge concessions to the United States, and then the United States withdraws under President Trump. Uh, so China now is trying to fill in the vacuum and trying to arrange trade deals with these individual countries uh, and basically saying, you don't need uh, a trade deal with the United States. Uh, do trade with China. Uh, so, you know, some people are questioning the commitment uh, of the United States. Um, and then uh, will the United States will really be there if the going gets rough, if there are tensions and disputes with China over islands and fishing grounds and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they've seen that uh, the president is talking about disavowing the Iran nuclear agreement. So they're wondering if they ever enter into agreements with the United States, if the president provides assurances, can they really count on it? So I think these face-to-face -face meetings with the various leaders uh, uh, our allied uh, leaders 
is very important. And Ambassador Locke, can you explain the controversy surrounding those islands off the coast of China and why that's become not only a, a big foreign policy issue, but also a military issue? Well, these are uh, disputed islands, uh, disputed between Vietnam, the Philippines, China, and some of the uh, um, uh, Southeast Asian countries. Uh, China says that uh, it is really part of China going back thousands and thousands of years. The World Court uh, has actually said that uh, uh, they, China may actually own these islands, but they cannot uh, uh, declare exclusive economic zones going out 150 miles 50 to 100 miles away from the shores and and excluding other people from fishing or or oil exploration these were really submerged reefs underwater and china has actually dredged uh, uh, undertaken huge dredging operations and built huge islands uh, uh developed these into huge islands above water islands and then built military bases on top of it so um, a lot of people wondering, well, what's the motive? Uh, what's going to happen? Will China try to dictate and control the sea lanes? Will China then um, try to develop uh, or claim territorial limits around these islands and exclude fishermen from other countries uh, from the area? Uh, will they uh, use it as a base of military operations? So a lot of questions about this. And um, the United States has taken the position that uh, uh, that we're not getting involved uh, or we don't take a position as to who really owns the islands. It has to be decided uh, among all the competing uh, claimants, but it needs to be done peacefully, diplomatically. And it doesn't help when China is building, building military bases, uh, air, you know, with airfields, military airfields and missile installations. Uh, that's not... Uh, providing a very calm uh, atmosphere by which uh, the countries can approach these issues diplomatically. And of course, before serving as our envoy in China, you served as the Commerce Secretary in the first couple of years of the Obama administration. When President Trump says the U.S. wants what he calls a level playing field in trade with China, does he have a point? Well, the United States has long taken the position that uh, China needs to be more fair, uh, open up its markets, uh, live up to its commitments under the WTO, uh, and treat American companies uh, with a level playing field. Uh, they favor so many of their Chinese companies. Um, there are many sectors of the Chinese economy that are off-limits to foreign investment, uh, whereas in the United States, virtually no sectors are off-limits to any type of foreign investment, whether from France, Germany, or uh, from China. Uh, but there's so many sectors, whether it's in the financial services, banking, uh, mineral resources, telecommunications, uh, that are closed off to any type of foreign participation. Foreign participation might be limited to less than 50%, or you might have to have a joint venture partner, et cetera, et cetera, which oftentimes makes it very, very difficult for foreign businesses to actually do things uh, the way they would like to, the way they're used to, uh, with their own uh, set of uh, standards and uh, uh, spirit, uh, uh, corporate culture, uh, and uh, in many cases, uh, U.S. applications by U.S. companies have been languishing uh, for many, many years, while applications for Chinese by Chinese companies are quickly approved. So, a lot of concerns about uh, the lack of a level playing field, discrimination against American companies and foreign companies, uh, and the um, and also just uh, requirements in terms of intellectual property. Uh, uh, requiring U.S. and foreign companies to 
divulge many of their trade secrets or their source codes as a condition of doing business in China. So these are all legitimate concerns raised by American companies, foreign companies, for many, many years. We've made progress. Uh, China has uh, slowly um, um, opened up markets, but we think they can do better and faster. And conversely, how do the Chinese view the U.S. in terms of a trading partner? Do they trust us? Well, they're doing very, very well uh, selling uh, their made-in-China goods into the United States. As I said, uh, so much of the U.S. economy is open uh, to uh, companies from all around the world, whether from Germany or Korea, to Israel, uh, Yugoslavia, uh, and, and China and Korea. So what we're really asking for is level, uh, a level playing field, fair treatment, reciprocity w with respect to Chinese policy, uh, toward American companies. We often hear the term One China and the One China Principle. What is that? Well, for many, many years, uh, uh, until really President Nixon went to China and, and President Carter recognized uh, China, mainland China, as the, the true China, uh, we, uh, we recognized Taiwan. I mean, the, there was a fight between the communists and the nationalists. The communists won in 1949. The nationalists fled to Taiwan and declared that uh, China, the Chinese government was uh, operating and out of Taiwan and that someday they would uh, go back to the mainland and reclaim control or retake control of the mainland. And so for many, many years, uh, uh, up until 1979, we recognized Taiwan the government based in Taiwan as the true government representing all of mainland China. Uh, we have treaties with Taiwan, uh, defense treaties with Taiwan. Um, but uh, President Nixon went to China in 1972, uh, and then later in 1979, President Carter said, no, we recognize Thai, uh, Beijing, uh, the mainland, as the true government of China, not Taiwan. And... Uh, uh, so we, 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 that is our one China policy. There is one China, and it is represented uh, by the government of Beijing. You mentioned President Nixon. It was February of 1972 when he made that historic landmark trip to Beijing, uh, generating international headlines. Walk us through the process. What led Richard Nixon to say, yes, we need to open relations with China? How significant was that for President Nixon and for the U.S.? And what's its lasting legacy? Well, the, the, the benefits have, have just been incredible uh, and very, very historic, with a lot of secret negotiations masterminded by and led by Henry Kissinger, um, then Secretary of State, uh, with secret uh, trips uh, uh, out of India into into China um, and uh, helping arrange the visit, uh, ultimately by President Nixon. Um, the uh, part of it was driven by the rivalry between the United States and Russia, and really trying to make sure that uh, uh, China was not falling into the orbit of of the Russians and uh, creating, in some ways, a wedge between. Um, uh, using China to create a wedge between uh, the United States and Russia. Uh, but, of course, uh, uh, since then, it's uh, been of great benefit to both countries. Uh, our yearly trade uh, up until President Nixon's visit uh, was less than $100 million a year, and only a handful of jobs in both countries depended on trade between the two countries. Uh, since then, our trade now is uh, today one and a half billion dollars per day 
um, and millions of jobs in America depend on trade with China. Uh, China is one of our largest export destinations of American-made U.S. goods and services. So millions of jobs here in America depend on selling our great, high-quality, made-in-USA products and services to China. For instance, China now is America's number one export destination for what we grow on our farms and what we process and produce, from soybeans to wheat to apples to cherries uh, and uh, French fry potatoes, frozen French fry potatoes, uh, you name it. Um, and China exports more to America than it does to all of the EU countries combined. Uh, Boeing airplanes, uh, almost 50% of Boeing airplanes uh, built in America are sold to Chinese airlines. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, when I was Commerce Secretary, we had a saying that, uh, uh, and the administration repeated it uh, often, uh, President Obama repeated it often, 95% uh, of the world's consumers live outside the borders of the United States. And of course, and, you are, you're in Seattle, so you're seeing the direct effects of Boeing's influence around the world, especially in China. Yes, uh, creating uh, tens of thousands of jobs here in the Seattle area. And of course, Boeing has facilities and plants and suppliers all across America. So uh, those jobs uh, depend on those uh, Boeing airplane sales to China. And of course, those machinists and those suppliers, uh, those workers, they shop in malls, eat in restaurants, uh, uh, remodel homes, buy cars, go on vacations, so they support many other jobs throughout their own communities and throughout America. One other element in all of this, uh, Ambassador Locke, is the role China plays in terms of being our largest foreign creditor. First of all, how did that come about, and what role does that play as we try to negotiate any trade agreement with uh, one of our largest trading partners? Well, first of all, that's a little bit, um, uh, you have to put that into context. Uh, the debt, the, the U.S. government debt is really held by Americans and American institutions. The major, vast majority is held by, uh, uh, you know, IOUs uh, held by Americans and American institutions. There is a large uh, uh, segment, but less than 50% owned by foreign entities. And of those foreign entities, China is the largest component. So it's not quite accurate for people to think that China is the largest holder of American debt. It is the largest holder among foreign entities, but all those foreign entities together own a minority of uh, the debt of, of the American government. But nonetheless, uh, um, if, uh, if China were to stop buying uh, some of our debt, uh, loaning us the money, basically, uh, our economy, uh, interest rates would go up and, and would have huge influences uh, on our economy. Let me ask you about North Korea and, and walk us through over the last 50 to 60 to 70 years the role China has played with Pyongyang. And then I want to ask you about the current situation. But give us some history. Well, China uh, has long been uh, um, kind of the um, uh, the salvation of North Korea. It has propped up its economy, uh, its industries. Uh, a lot of trade goes back and forth between North Korea and China. Um, right now, China is almost is Korea North Korea's lifeline. Uh, they they buy stuff from North Korea, uh, whether it's food or coal. And that money uh, keeps the North Korean regime uh, running. 
um, the there actually is not well for many many centuries there's been friction between the people of China and Korea um, but uh, right now they're joined together really by necessity and by political alliances. But culturally, uh, there has been a lot of tension between the Japanese, the Koreans, and the Chinese. Uh, But um, uh, over the last several decades, uh, China has been allied with North Korea. Uh, uh, Going back to the the Korean War, Um, and uh, they are very concerned about any growing influence of South Korea and the United States on the peninsula, they do not want to see, China does not want to see a unified Korea uh, because they don't want a democracy right on their, on their borders, on their doorstep. And North Korea p- creates a buffer uh, between South Korea and democratic forces and the American military and the Chinese border. But what is a bigger threat, a united Korea or a nuclear North Korea? Well, China doesn't believe that North Korea would ever uh, attack China. Uh, but they're very concerned about the fact that Japan, South Korea, and especially America is concerned about a potential nuclear threat posed by North Korea. And that creates problems for China. Um, and uh, they don't want South Korea or Japan to develop their own nuclear arsenal. They don't like the United States putting up all these defense uh, missile defense systems, which conceivably could be used against China. So they're more concerned about the response of America, Japan, and South Korea to what North Korea is doing, as opposed to being threatened directly by North Korea. Um, nonetheless, they have uh, been trying to put pressure on the the new North Korean regime with little success. Uh, They, quite frankly, don't get along with the new leader of North Korea and are very concerned about him because of his unpredictable and irrational behavior. Um, And they have uh, gone along and supported uh, the the last several UN sanctions against uh, North Korea. Um, And uh, so uh, they're trying to put more pressure uh, on North Korea as well. As you follow this, though, from your vantage point and having spent time in Beijing, administration officials continue to say that they want more than lip service from the Chinese government. It's up to China to stop uh, North Korea, to stop Kim Jong-un and stop uh, Pyongyang. Can China do that? I think it's unrealistic to put the burden on China. Uh, China certainly can use its trade leverage uh, and the fact that China buys so much from North Korea, which thereby props up the North Korean regime. But, uh, um, you know, China can stop buying more and the North Korea will become poorer, but that just affects the people. Uh, the, the government of North Korea still has its own capabilities uh, to live uh, comfortably, uh, to fund its um, um, weapons program. Uh, so the problem is that we can have all the, uh, a lot more ch- sanctions against North Korea, but it's going to be the people who suffer, who are really living under very impoverished and very meager uh, circumstances already. Um, so we've got to be very, very careful and very, very strategic. But nonetheless, it's... It, this has to be this will be resolved not just by china but it's going to require the participation of the united states russia south korea japan uh, north korea as well as china Um, we've got to get to the negotiating table we've got to bring people together over for the last 
15, 20 years, the position of America has been that, well, we're not going to sit down and talk with you until you first disavow your military and your nuclear program. Well, that has not gotten us anywhere in the last 12 years or so. Uh, North Korea has still moved forward with its development of a ballistic missile delivery system as well as, as, well as a, a nuclear capability. And North Korea just says, well, look what happened to Omar Gaddafi. You know, uh, under pressure from the West, he abandoned and gave up his nuclear uh, program, and the United States and the Western allies turned against him and overthrew him. So North Korea, for now at least, feels that as long as they have this nuclear capability, South Korea and the United States will not invade North Korea. Are you worried, though, about North Korea and Kim Jong-un in particular? Well, we need to be uh, concerned that uh, all parties uh, lower the temperature and the rhetoric. Uh, Including and, the president? Uh, not try to inflame it or, or provoke the other side. Um, that's the last thing we need, because uh, um, even without use of military weapons, if there is a conflict, um, if, if for whatever reason North Korea dis feels it has to defend itself or feels it's being attacked, or think it's, thinks it's about to be attacked and, and then launches an attack on South Korea. Uh, South Korea, the capital of Seoul, is just uh, almost uh, thrown still away from the Korean border, and uh, millions of people would die with, under an artillery and missile barrage, uh, non-nuclear missile barrage against uh, the South. Uh, so it is very, very tense. It's um, very, very delicate, and, and we really need to figure out a way to get the, all the parties back to the negotiating table to really talk about all these issues. So when you say lower the temperature, do you include President Trump? I include everybody. You were the first Chinese-American to serve as the U.S. ambassador to China. What was that like for you personally? Well, it was a great thrill and an honor. And unfortunately, my father uh, passed away just before I went to China. I think uh, he would have been most proud to see his son representing America in the land of his birth. Um, he was very proud to see me sworn in um, by President Obama as Commerce Secretary, but I think he would have been even more proud to see me uh, as his son returning to his ancestral homeland representing America. It was a great experience. Uh, the, the Chinese people, the Chinese government were very warm and gracious and friendly to our entire family, and my children were able to discover the land of their ancestors, visit the family village, which is um, about two miles from a city of millions of people, but it's like stepping back into the 1800s. That's why I say China is really a land of contrast. While you have a booming middle class, very wealthy parts of uh, a very wealthy segment of China, more billionaires in China than in the United States, tallest skyscrapers and the most modern uh, architecture in the world, and at the same time, hundreds of millions of people uh, living in poverty uh, on less than a dollar a day. Um, but uh, it was a great opportunity for the children to really appreciate how fortunate we are to be in America with freedom, democracy, transparency in government, um, quality food, quality health care, um, clean air. Where, by the way, is your family originally from? Which, which town, which village? 
Uh, my uh, uh, on my father's side, um, uh, a rural village in the middle of uh, Guangdong Province, uh, halfway between Guangzhou, what used to be called Canton, China, and Hong Kong. It's the area, rural parts of China, that really was the source of the earliest immigration to America. The Chinese that came to the United States to work on the railroads to finish the transcontinental railroad when the railroad got stuck outside the mountains of California, and they brought all these Chinese in from uh, rural parts of Guangdong province uh, with their expertise in dynamite and explosives to finish the railroad. Uh, That group of Chinese from that area stayed on, and more came to work in the gold mines, established uh, the the Chinatowns of San Francisco, New York, uh, Los Angeles, Seattle, um, the Chinese from that area then worked in the lumber camps and the coal mines up and down the West Coast. My mom actually came from Hong Kong, uh, a more prosperous uh, area of China. Some interesting history. So let me conclude with this question. As you watch the president in China, what will your metrics be? How will you measure whether or not his trip to China in particular was a success? A lot of people will, will look at the trade deals that will be announced. Uh, those are always uh, Um, a feature of any presidential foreign trip, uh, trying to tout the the jobs in America that will be created or supported by continuing sales of American products, whether it's Boeing airplanes or uh, oil exports or heavy machinery or some agricultural goods. Uh, Those things are going to happen no matter what. The real test is whether or not um, they really have a good conversation. And you can't, that'll never really be known. And we'll we'll see perhaps the benefits or the fruits of that down the road. Um, What commitments do they make toward each other in terms of trying to remove some of these trade barriers, uh, uh, providing more level playing field for U.S. companies? Uh, How will they approach North Korea? They can have these nice statements, but the proof of the pudding will be half a year from now, a year from now. What is the trajectory of the U.S.-China relationship? Will there be lots more uh, trade sanctions against Chinese goods? Uh, Will we have a trade war? Because if we level all these punitive measures on Chinese goods, um, the Chinese will turn right around and level punitive measures on U.S. goods. And then that could end up in a trade war. And in a trade war, nobody wins. Uh, consumers lose and workers lose. So we need to be very, very careful. So uh, I would be trying to look at the whether or not they're really committing themselves to a, a method of trying to tackle North Korea, uh, the type of communication they're going to have, um, and uh, how they're going to try to approach these large international issues, whether it's the South China Sea disputes uh, to uh, climate change, terrorism, um, and uh, um, just uh, just the relationship between the United States and China. Gary Locke is the former governor of Washington State and served as Commerce Secretary in the first two years of the Obama administration for the purposes of our conversation, served as the U.S. envoy to China from 2011 through 2014. Ambassador Locke, we thank you for your time and your expertise. My pleasure, Steve. 
You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter and let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.